life, life is frustrating when it's out of your control. If it's one thing we want in life, it's certainty. And if it's one thing that's been withheld from us recently, it's certainty. If there's a word that captures this moment in history, it is the word unpredictability. I'm a planner. And it's been a hard season for planners. <laughs> you know this. You had to cancel the vacation you planned. You had to cancel the meeting you planned. You had to cancel seeing the family like you planned. Nothing is going according to plan. Your kids' schooling isn't going as planned. You business owners have had the worst year financially in decades because of circumstances out of your control. For those of you that are crazy driven, you've had to lower your expectations, your ambitions. You didn't meet certain objectives and goals as you planned. News headlines over the last year have screamed unpredictable. Bushfires ravage Australia. An unknown virus creeps across the world. In the midst of one of the best economies, suddenly, global recession. The NCAA cancels March Madness, which I didn't mind as much because my Tar Heels were going to miss that tournament anyway. Uh, more headlines. Murder hornets enter the U.S. Nashville bombing. Unpredictable. Even in the last two weeks, the snowpocalypse put many things out of the reach of your control. The old prophet had it right when he said, Life is like... Life is like a box of chocolates, and you never know what you're going to get. It's the prophet Forrest Gump. You need to think about the twists and turns of life biblically. Ecclesiastes is a great book to be studying right now. Have you not been struck by its relevance for this particular moment? In a day when you have never been more aware of the unpredictability of life, Ecclesiastes is a hand in the darkness. That leads you to light. I'm going to do a flyover the, the passage uh, before we parachute into it and view it at, at ground level. Verses 1 through 6 deal with the certainty of death. The only thing that's been certain in these days, the only thing that's been predictable, is that people will die. Los Angeles Lakers basketball player, former Laker Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter die. They die in a helicopter crash. The deadliest mass shooting in Canada's history. The only thing you can count on is that the death toll will keep rising. Verses 1 through 6, the certainty of death. Verses 11 and 12, the unpredictability of life. Sandwiched between the two is actually the solution. The certainty of death, the unpredictability of life, and then verses 7 through 10, the secret of living in the midst of both. This leads us to one overarching truth that will function as our title for this exposition, and it is this. Death is certain, and life is unpredictable. So enjoy each day God has given you. Death is certain... And life is unpredictable. 
So enjoy each day God has given you. Uh, this old king, this learned sage, Solomon, introduces the topic of death. And this is not a passing treatment of death, but a detailed study. He says in verse 1, But all this, now that's death, people dying, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. Do you hear the intensity of his deliberation? He's examining death with a detailed eye. He says, I, I took all this in. I, I thought it through. I turned it over and over in my hands like a Rubik's Cube. And here's what I conclude. Verse 2. It is the same for all. Since the same event, death, happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil. To the clean and the unclean. Here's, here's the point. He's pointing out the sweeping control of death. The mortality rate is still 100% the last time I checked. There is one fate for all. Death is the universal obliterator. Death is a predator that tracks us down. You can't outrun it, no matter how many push-ups you do or how many salads you eat. There's a, there's a bumper sticker that reads, Eat well, stay fit, die anyway. Drink your filtered water, but it will not filter out death. How and when death works is a mystery. But the fact that death will work is not a mystery. You don't know how you will die or when you will die, but you know that you're going to die. Death is the limit that the Creator has placed on you to show you that you aren't God. Solomon lists five pairs of opposites in verse 2. The righteous and the wicked. The good and the evil. The clean and the unclean. Those who sacrifice and those who do not sacrifice. In other words, the religious crowd and, and the irreligious crowd. The loyal covenant keeper and the disloyal covenant breaker. Death tracks down and overtakes them all. The nice and the nasty. The moral and the immoral. Women and men. Tupac and Beethoven. The street graffiti artist and the brilliant Rembrandt. Elvis Presley and Charles Spurgeon. Al Capone and Nelson Mandela. All go to the ground in the end. When Saddam Hussein was executed in 2006, he probably thought he received what he deserved. But when William Tyndale, who translated your Bible into English, was choked and burned at the stake, do you think he got what he deserved? Here's the point. Righteousness has no built-in guarantees. Morality does not protect you from mortality. And this is big coming from Solomon, the Israelite, who is basically saying that being an obedient Israelite really amounts to nothing at the end of the day. He continues in verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. What's that event? Death. Now, Some of you don't think about death. You live like you have an endless supply of days. And Solomon wants you to come to terms with your own mortality. We are all sandcastles. 
And the waves of death will come and wash us away. Solomon will now demonstrate that if, if you're still alive, there's reason for hope. Now remember, Solomon is the wisest man on the planet. He's just dropped some wisdom about death. But don't forget that he's an expert in every field. He, he's a botanist. He's mastered plants. He's a horticulturist. He knows gardens and vineyards. He's a zoologist. He's an expert in all animals. Amphibians and mammals and reptiles. He puts that knowledge on display in verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, to fully feel the weight of this verse, you must leave the west and go to the east. You must leave A.D. and go to B.C. Uh, lions in the Near Eastern mentality were the most majestic animals alive. Uh, they were the mightiest of beasts. People wanted lions to represent their kingdoms. And even God liked to use the king of the jungle to represent himself to the people. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now dogs, dogs to the an ancients, uh, dogs were not household pets. They didn't push their dogs in a stroller like a child or carry their dogs in their purses, or sleep with their dogs, or let their dogs lick them in the mouth. Dogs were despised in the ancient world because they were notoriously unclean. They were filthy animals. They hung out by the city garbage dumps. Dogs feasted on dead flesh. There's even a story in the Bible where dogs licked up Ahab's blood and ate Jezebel's corpse. Dogs to Solomon were like Vultures or rats to us. No one denies a lion is more beautiful than a dog. No one denies a lion is stronger than a dog. No one denies a lion is a better protector than a dog. Think of Goliath's taunt of David. Am I a dog that you come out here against me with sticks? There's a, a Peanuts cartoon where Snoopy is sitting on the top of his doghouse with his chin up in pride, and, and Charlie is handed what Snoopy has written. And it reads, As it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Charlie gives the paper back and asks, What does that mean? Snoopy examines it and replies, I don't know, but I agree with it. <laughs> yes, it's good to be alive. Solomon's point here is this. While you're still alive, there's hope. Hope for getting right before you meet God. Even for rats, if there's life, there's hope. Dear non-Christian, you have hope because you're breathing. Repent and run to Christ. In verses 5 and 6, it sounds like Solomon has... Absolutely no doctrine of the afterlife. But he does. We know that. He's, he's talked about God judging in the afterlife. He's written about God making all things right in the afterlife. What Solomon is doing in verses 5 and 6 is he is desentimentalizing death. His point is to strip away the sentimentalized view that death is pleasant. Now Christians view death differently than non-Christians. 
Because we view death as a door that leads to Christ, but also as a door that leads to no more sinning for us. However, we are wrong. We are wrong to see death simply as a device that morally transforms us. Death is not a transformer. It is a curse. God is the transformer. And that leads us to our first truth. Death comes to all men. And that reveals more about you than it does about God. Death comes to all men. And that reveals more about you than it does about God. Death is not something. Death is not simply something that happens to you. It happens to you because you are a sinner. You've been destined for death since the moment you were born. And these six verses fly in the face of ancient wisdom. They they regarded a strict connection between your conduct and your reward. A universal principle of cause and effect. Well, if, if I'm good, then good things will come to me. That's karma, not the Bible. If I'm bad, then bad things will come into my life. Just because death comes into your life, just because difficult things come into your life, they give no clue as to what God thinks of you. You cannot look at the ups and downs of your life and determine how God feels about you. You cannot look at your marriage or lack of one and say, God doesn't love me. It doesn't work that way. Well, my child is doing well, so God loves me. Well, my child's an addict, so God doesn't love me. Stop that. You cannot tell by what God allows in your life if you're the object of God's love or hatred. Well, he hates those who receive adversity and he loves those who receive prosperity. Where is that ever taught in the Bible? Christian, you don't need to wonder if God is indifferent towards you. How do you tell if Jesus is for you or against you? Look at the cross. You are the object of God's love. And there's a unique promise that I skipped in verse 1. It says, The righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Are you redeemed? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Yes, then you're in God's hand. You are under God's special care. Solomon is, of course, using anthropomorphic language here. But ultimately, in all of his discussion about death, he leaves God's people in God's hands. The image of the hand of God illustrates God's sovereign supervision and control. God really does have the whole world in his hands. Psalm 95 7 says we are sheep in his hand. Stephen Davey says it's important to remember that Jesus' hands are still nail scarred. The world he created crucified him. They washed their hands of him. But that's actually good news for the believer. The Savior who called you and redeemed you is capable of taking care of you. And he will never wash his hands of you. The second truth. Until you die. Until you die. 
discipline yourself to enjoy the life God has given you. If we're going to die and we know it, then how should we live? Solomon says, some surprising advice, have a blast while you last. Solomon gives you four things to enjoy. First, enjoy meals. Notice verse, that's something I can get behind. Notice verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Solomon begins with a list of imperatives, commands. I command you first to enjoy meals. And, and he says, go. That's really the first imperative. Uh, go, that's a wake-up call. Stop nursing your anger. Stop being a negative Nancy. Stop brooding over your victim status. Get past your anxiety. Move beyond your frustrations and go. Feel the urgency of the command to go. Go and do what? Eat your bread with joy. Now, there's all types of bread. So Solomon is saying, enjoy your baguette. Enjoy your banana bread, your breadsticks, your cornbread, your pita bread, your sourdough bread. Enjoy Panera bread. Now, of course, bread was a staple, and so it represented all of food. And this is just simple advice from the wisest man to ever live. Don't rush through your meals. Savor them. Don't gulp it down like a pelican gulps down a fish. God made it where you not only need food to live, but you really need to enjoy the food that makes you live. And he's provided a rich variety of delicious foods. Texas barbecue. Louisiana gumbo, Maine lobster, Chicago deep dish pizza, Kentucky fried chicken, Oregon kale. That, that fell apart on me. Ohio Buckeyes, the little dessert, Southern Georgia grits, Philly cheesesteak, Maryland crab cakes. Hungry yet? California fruits and nuts. Solomon, Solomon addresses the plate and then he addresses the cup. Verse 7, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, of course, all of you know that the, wine, that the word wine in Hebrew is literally uh, Welch's grape juice. They, they had a factory in the Old Testament. All right. In Israel, wine was a favorite. They hadn't discovered sweet tea yet. And, and God's provided a, a rich variety of drink for you to enjoy. Enjoy your Diet Coke. Savor that tall decaf cappuccino. Slurp your tea with vigor. Enjoy that Arnold Palmer. Or as they call it in North Carolina, where I grew up, muddy water. Enjoy your smart water, your Dasani water, your Aquafina water. Just don't drink Flint water. Michigan? No. God delights when his creatures enjoy things. He delights when bumblebees bounce with joy from flower to flower. He delights when little clownfish play in the ocean. He delights when his creatures enjoy his creation. And that includes his human creatures. So bounce from food to food and playfully enjoy your drink. Secondly, he says, enjoy... Getting dressed up. Notice verse 8. 
Let your garments be always white. Let not your oil be lacking on your head. Don't think it doesn't matter how you dress or how you smell. Sweatpants aren't something you wear out. Deodorant is a good gift of God. Solomon says, let your garments be white. Even after Labor Day? Yes. Now, is Solomon saying we need to walk around like the Backstreet Boys, literally wearing all white? No. White clothing in this day was reserved for special occasions, festive events. They were emblems of joy. White garments were dressing up in Solomon's day. Priests wore white garments during sacrifice. War heroes wore white garments in victory parades. White clothing wasn't worn a lot because it was just hard to keep clean, as you can imagine, in, in the desert. But white was also more comfortable. The hot, dry climate of Palestine would reflect off the white fabric rather, rather than absorb the heat. So in modern vernacular, uh, put on your tuxedos and evening gowns. And then Solomon says, pour oil on your head. It's not motor oil. This was a cultural oil that soothed the skin. The Middle East is arid and your skin could become really dry and irritated. And this oil protected against dry skin. In modern vernacular, this verse may read, shampoo your hair, take care of your skin, chapstick your lips. Now let me bring in some cultural context here. It's interesting that distraught people in the Bible, people in mourning, would often show their sadness by wearing dark sackcloth, rough camel clothing. And they would put ashes on their head, something that would further dry the skin. Solomon is saying, do not live in mourning. Death will come, life will be unpredictable, but don't live in mourning. Don't stay locked up in your house. Don't become a recluse. Get out of bed, get dressed up, and enjoy God's good gifts. You're not denying the difficulties of life, but you're choosing to put on your festive garments and enjoy God's table. You're dancing before the grim reaper. The tendency to mope must be resisted. Enjoy your meals. Enjoy getting dressed up. Thirdly, he says, enjoy your relationships. Notice verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain, that can be translated short, all the days of your short life that God has given you. Now the text does not say put up with your wife or just try to endure your wife. <laughs> no, it says to enjoy your wife. Well, you don't know my wife. She's crazy and you can't enjoy crazy. If you say, well, my wife is difficult to enjoy. The solution is found in this verse. Notice the phrase. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Loving comes before enjoying. You won't enjoy your wife if you don't love your wife. If you don't enjoy her now, then the question is, are you obeying the command to love her now? Let that love lead to enjoyment. You, you can't enjoy your wife unless you love Jesus more than your wife. And ladies, this goes in reverse as well. Do you enjoy your husband? Well, I feed that slob. I talk to him. Do you enjoy him? You can't enjoy your husband unless you're committed to following him like the son followed the father. Be intentional 
about enjoying one another. Listen carefully to each other. Honor each other. Not constantly pointing out each other's faults. In marriage, joy is not only possible, it's demanded. Now, God's command is the primary reason you should enjoy your spouse. But there is a secondary reason as well. Enjoy the time with your spouse today because they may be gone tomorrow. I used to be up here preaching and see certain husbands and wives listening to the preaching together with their Bibles open and looking over at one another at certain times and laughing and at times looking at one another and confessing sin during the preaching. And I'd see broken couples find hope when a certain verse was exposited and hold hands and whisper, we're going to make it. Some of those spouses are gone now. They are with Christ. And those widows and widowers who are still here would tell you, don't play stupid little pouty games with your spouse. Enjoy your spouse, because one day they will be gone. Cherish your spouse. They say, Kyle, I'm single. Kyle, I'm divorced. Where does this land on me? Well, this command can be broadened in application to include all relationships. Enjoy the relationship with your children. Enjoy the relationship with your grandparents, your extended family. Enjoy the relationships with your faith family. If you're too busy to enjoy relationships, you are too busy. Period. End story. Full stop. This is how you enjoy life. By making the most of relationships. Investing time and sweat into them. Being willing to be hurt, misunderstood, wronged. Fourthly, he says, enjoy your daily labor. Verse 9. Enjoy your toil at which you toil under the sun. Solomon goes on to say in verse 10 that your work, to enjoy your work because death will one day sever that opportunity. Now Solomon doesn't say death. Solomon uses the word sheol, which is not a synonym for hell. Most of the time it's translated grave. Now again, I'm going to hit this point one more time. When Solomon says there is no work in sheol where you are going, he's not denying the afterlife. He's illustrating that death ends the opportunity to enjoy earthly jobs. And some of you work in a, in a little closed-off, dark office all day, and you're thinking, well, if I worked under the sun, like this verse is commanding, I could enjoy my job. If I could just get a little light in here. Well, under the sun doesn't mean working outside. It means everything on earth. Whatever your job under the sun, enjoy it. Well, Kyle, you don't, you don't know my boss. I don't care if your boss is Michael Scott from The Office or Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants. The text doesn't give any exception clauses. It doesn't say enjoy your job unless you have a terrible boss. God created us to work. So purposeful work should give us satisfaction. All jobs are imperfect. Solomon is taking that into account. So enjoy your imperfect unit. Your imperfect office job, your imperfect landscaping job, your imperfect customer service job. Enjoy your imperfect mothering and your imperfect homemaking. Enjoy your imperfect employees, bosses. Whether you labor in law or science or construction or education or medicine or arts, enjoy it. 
Enjoying the life that God has given you is not new. It began in the Garden of Eden. The joys of eating, drinking, marriage, and work. But that all changed after man committed sin. Suddenly there was eating that could be corrupted with gluttony. Drinking that could be corrupted with drunkenness. Strife in marriage in place of joy. And now toil and drudgery in work. You don't enjoy your job because you love your job. You enjoy your job because you love Jesus. You don't enjoy your marriage because you have a perfect spouse. You enjoy your marriage because you have a perfect Savior. You don't enjoy food and drink because they give you ultimate satisfaction. You enjoy food and drink out of an already satisfied position in Christ. I mean, let's just back away from this passage just from a bit and view the book as a whole. There are seven total passages in the book where Solomon encourages us to enjoy life. Probably because he wasn't. He had a messed up marriage, or better yet, marriage is. But he's telling us to keep it simple and don't do what I did. It's important to Solomon, so important that he repeats this seven times. Learn to enjoy life. Learn to enjoy life. Learn to enjoy life. Now, why does he repeat that seven times? Well, there's three reasons. First, we aren't naturally bent toward enjoying life. We aren't naturally bent toward enjoying life. I know one thing for sure about all of you. You are dying. What I'm not sure of is if you're actually living there's an Akkadian poem dating back to the time of Abraham, possibly earlier. It's called the, the Epic of, of Gilgamesh. It's widely known in the ancient world. And it's a fictional story about a hero king experiencing a series of quests and adventures. Any, anyway, a lady tells Gilgamesh something that is very similar to what we have here. She says, Gilgamesh, where are you hurrying to? You will never find that life to which you are looking. Gilgamesh. Fill your belly with good things. Day and night, dance and be merry. Feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh. Bathe yourself in water. Cherish the little child that holds your hand. And make your wife happy in your embrace. For this is the lot of man. End quote. This seems to be the quest for all mankind. Present and past. What is the secret to enjoying the simple things of life? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus offers some answers that were not available to this teacher, Solomon, in the Old Testament. Uh, the four-part list that Solomon gives to enjoy is not an exhaustive list of God's gifts. It's a representative list. But I'd like to expand on the list. Enjoy a good bike ride. Enjoy serving others. Enjoy friends and laugh with them and, until it makes you cry. Enjoy giving money away. Enjoy hearing birds sing. Enjoy watching a child play. Enjoy a good night's rest. Why does Solomon repeat this command to enjoy life three times? Well, first, we aren't naturally bent toward enjoying life. Secondly, religious people can distort your view of enjoyment. Religious people can distort your view of enjoyment in the Christian life. Don't let the religious but not saved keep you from enjoying life. 
some of you grew up in an environment that only saw holiness as holiness by subtraction. You will likely struggle with this text. There are ascetics among the Christian ranks. In Paul's day, they forbid marriage and demanded abstinence from certain foods even after Jesus declared those foods clean. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that enjoying these gifts is a means of worship. It is true spirituality. It's not a sin to enjoy life, to enjoy intimacy, to enjoy a good meal. If you were raised with a brand of Christianity that communicated life as a drag, holiness as boring, then you were mistaught. You don't need to deprive yourself of pleasure so that God knows how sad you are. That's not religious. That's ridiculous. The Heavenly Father is looking down at you and going, What are you doing? My firstborn son, Jesus, already took the beating. Enjoy life. These aren't guilty pleasures. These are God's pleasures. I love the Puritans. I love to read after the Puritans, but they often missed it here. Why does Solomon repeat this command to enjoy life seven times? One, we aren't naturally bent toward enjoying life. Two, religious people can distort your view of enjoyment. Thirdly, you can pervert God's good gifts. You can pervert God's good gifts. The same gifts could bring perverted joy instead of gospel joy. You really can't enjoy any of these rightly apart from God. So you ask, Kyle, how do I know if I'm being licentious or just enjoying God's good gifts? Well, if you can't pray about it, you're embarrassed about mentioning it to God, then that should make you think. God, thank you for giving me this Pepsi. God, thank you for giving me this plate of ribs. God, thank you for giving me this intimate act with my spouse. God, thank you for giving me this. You fill in the blank. Do you feel good about including it in your prayer to God? Third truth. Expect the unpredictable and weather it with gospel flexibility. Expect the unpredictable and weather it with gospel flexibility. The author just keeps bouncing back and forth between pleasure and pain. We started with pain and bounced to pleasure. Now we're bouncing back to pain. But Solomon is going to use five examples to demonstrate the unpredictability of life. You'll find five examples here to demonstrate the unpredictability of life. The first example is in verse 11. The race is not to the swift. Now, the fastest runner usually wins the race. But not always. Um, who was faster, the, the tortoise or the hare? Who was faster? The hare. But who won? The tortoise. Uh, the, the first example is in the sports realm. Often the outcome of a race or a fight or a basketball game is predictable. We would expect Usain Bolt to win a foot race, for Conor McGregor to win a fight, for Shaq to dominate the basketball game. But the predictable doesn't always happen. Sometimes Connor gets knocked out. Sometimes Evansville beats Kentucky. Lehigh beats Duke. The 16 seed beats the 1 seed. Sometimes the unexpected happens. Notice his second example. 
in verse 11. Nor the battle to the strong. The biggest army usually wins, but not always. Read your history books. They're filled with unexpected victories by smaller, less equipped military forces. The American War for Independence. Uh, Chancellorsville in the Civil War. One of our elders told me about Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans held out long enough so the Spurgeon, so the Spurgeons, so the Persians, I'd like to be a part of that kingdom, so the Persians were prevented from conquering Greece. And this isn't unheard of biblically either. Israel was often the smaller army that defeated the larger one. Remember Gideon and the Midianites. Um, another question here who was stronger, David or Goliath? Goliath. Who won? David. Sometimes the guy who has been training like an animal in the gym gets knocked out at the bar by an old truck driver. My favorite is from the non-inspired book of the, of the Maccabees. Maccabees meaning hammer. Uh, a, a rural priest and his five sons along with other men went out to war. And they were disturbed because the worship was not kept pure. And so there were 7,000 men versus 60,000 SF guys. Uh, who won? The rural priest and his boys in cowboy boots. They were so excited that they came back and they created a holiday called Hanukkah. The light was back on in the temple. The third example in verse 11 of the unpredictable is, Nor bread to the wise. The brightest and most skillful people usually get the better jobs and make a lot of money. But not always. Wisdom is not a guarantee of livelihood. The fourth example, nor riches to the intelligent. You've all met intelligent people in your life. Do they all have lots of riches? No. Haddon Robinson wrote a, actually, who, who wrote the book on expository preaching, he told about having a dinner in Cincinnati with a man who was a renowned investment advisor. And Haddon writes, Close to dessert time, I thought I might get a little free advice. So I said, you've been at this job of investment for over 20 years. What's the most important things you've learned? He leaned in, lowered his voice and said, I've learned that some of the dumbest people in this city are among the wealthiest. And some of the smartest have gone bankrupt. You can have your career all planned out, your investments all buttoned up, and then what? An accident occurs? Virus hits and illness strikes. The fifth example of the unpredictable, nor favor to those with knowledge. The brilliant, the knowledgeable usually receive the favor, but not always. There are teachers who are intellectually superior, but lose out on the job to a less qualified person because the hire was an inside job. The boss's good friend. Now, what is Solomon's point in, in all of this? Listing these five unpredictables. Well, you must remember that Proverbs deals mainly with generalities. And Ecclesiastes deals mainly with the exceptions. Solomon's conveying, I said this in Proverbs and it's true. But there are exceptions. Let me tell you about the exceptions in Ecclesiastes. Proverbs gives you the rule. Ecclesiastes gives you the exceptions to the rule. For example, Proverbs says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he, was, when he is older, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a generality. It's, it's normally true. Understanding this can 
lift guilt off of your shoulders. We all know children who came from good, strong families who turned away from Christ. We all know children who came from wild, non-Christian families who turned to Christ. Proverbs are axioms. And they tell you what is most likely to happen if you do this. Statistically, they're always accurate. Ecclesiastes deals with the times when the generalities don't come through. Bolt doesn't win the race. Goliath doesn't win the fight. The wise do go hungry. The intelligent can't find a well-paying job. On and on. Human ability cannot guarantee success. Two factors may upset all human calculations. Time and chance. Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. But time and chance happen to them all. Sooner or later, chance hits us all. Solomon looks at life and he says, Time and chance determine who prospers and who doesn't. Now, we don't believe in the pagan notion of chance. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Everything that is going on today is under the sovereign rule. We can trust our God when the generalities don't play out. I think chance is a, is, a, is a bad translation. A better translation would be time and happenings happen to us all. In other words, situations arise, circumstances change, unforeseen events occur. And then notice this last verse in verse 12. For man does not know his time. Let's stop here for a moment. Solomon's talking about death again. For man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net. Picture a man standing on a boat casting a round net into the air. It spreads out and the weights on the edges make it sink quickly, trapping little Nemo. And the same with birds. The verse continues, And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. No one can predict when death will come. No one can predict when misfortune will arrive. When the unpredictable hits us, we can weather it. You know why? Because we have Christ. Although we cannot, we have a God who predicts the unpredictable. He's never surprised. He's never shaken. Because all is well on the throne, we can weather the unpredictable with gospel flexibility. Now, I've got one closing application, and that's it. Not, not 10, not 12, like normal, just one. And the one closing application is this. What does the rest of the Bible have to teach us about all of this? What does the rest of the Bible have to teach us about all of this? Well, these 12 verses in Ecclesiastes do not stand alone. They are in the middle of a book, the Bible, with one unifying theme. So how does that theme continue throughout the rest of the story. Well, it's interesting, later in this book, Jesus taught us not only to enjoy food and drink, but also not to worry about food and drink. He will care for you. Remind yourself every morning when you wake up, this is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. In other words, remind yourself to enjoy this day. Now, one more little nuance. Uh, verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10. That's full wedding imagery. 
full wedding imagery. Food, drink, celebration, white garments, husband, wife. And it is a foretaste of a future wedding to come. Our earthly pleasures are telling us that we are made for another world. Another pleasure, another wedding. Whenever you see a beautiful bride dressed in white, whenever you see an eager groom, you are catching a glimpse of the final wedding. Jesus has promised us a great wedding feast in the future where we will wear our white garments at a party that will never end. Jeffrey Mayer has a meditation on Ecclesiastes entitled, um, A Table in the Midst. I would retitle it, A Wedding in the Midst. Our perfect groom is coming for us. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.